Hi, I'm Emily Reed Daniels, and I'm the founder of Hear This Now and the author of The Regulated Classroom. Thank you so much for joining us today for our Convos During COVID, which has been a conversation series we've been hosting for the last several months and have enjoyed amazing guests like Dr. Steve Porges and Dr. Goldie Muhammad and many others. If you're interested in this conversation and others like it, please visit us at www.hearthisnow.org. H-E-R-E-T-H-I-S-N-O-W.org. Welcome to our show. Welcome to Convos During COVID. In this episode, I invited two of my fellow colleagues, Lara Kane and Kristen Bernier, to join me for a Zoom chat with three amazing trauma-informed pioneers in the field. These aren't just any pioneers. These are badass women with a strong desire to make a difference for their school communities. They literally want to revolutionize the way that we do education. We discussed a bit about their journey to becoming trauma-informed, their current struggles as female leaders, and how our COVID crisis leadership development program will bolster their resilience now and in the coming months of this seemingly never-ending school year. Take a listen. So who would like to go first? I don't mind. Um, I'm Julie Volker, also go by Jules. Um, I'm a special education uh, supervisor for... um, the Washna ISD here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Um, I supervise two programs and a traveling group of itinerants. So my two programs um, are on the EI continuum, the emotionally impaired continuum. I have a center-based program that services nine local districts. Um, We have the most severely impacted students with emotional and behavioral needs in Washtenaw County. Um, I also just started supervising um, another program on the continuum that does um, live in a gen ed building, so they have access to um, their gen ed peers. And then I have a group called the Academic Behavior Team that I also helped create. And what are we were seeing a big need for? Um, I don't know how familiar folks are with special ed, but a big need for supports around data as to why a student would leave their gen ed environment and come to a more restricted environment. A lot of times it was a in discussions, when I first came to the ISD, it was a, I feel, and I kept saying, okay, well, let's talk about the data, and that wasn't there. So we created this team to move out into the nine local districts based on referrals and help build um, functional behavior assessments, collect data, develop positive behavior support plans, work on PBIS and curriculum matching, and so that's, that's my work. Mm-hmm. Yay, so happy you're here. Hi, Jules. Thank you. Welcome. <laughs> Kelly, do you mind going next? No, I'll go next. Um, I'm Kelly Killen. I'm an assistant superintendent in a district in New Hampshire. And um, we have, in our district, it's kind of a small district. We have K to eight. I have five schools, four separate towns that all operate as separate towns. So I say I get to be an assistant superintendent four times because they're all just enough different um, (laughs) to make things interesting. Um, We are currently in school. All the kids are in school. We've been in school since September, 11 weeks and counting. So um, that's a major accomplishment. And um, I think I've become a regular, disciple 
<laughs> after learning all about this and, and resilience. And um, so that's where I am. I've got 30 plus years in education. I've been a teacher. I've been a principal um, now at the district level. So um, learning about all of this has really been a paradigm shift. It's interesting that now I have vocabulary to put to what I kind of instinctively was doing with students anyway, in terms of um, looking at them and always knowing there was a reason behind their behavior, even if I couldn't find out what that was. Um, and so, and now I'm just trying to bring this to the staff that I work with and the administrators that I work with to really hopefully make a difference for them and for kids. So. Awesome. So a little radical acceptance for Cal. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Sharon, you would like to go next? We'll just have our yes. guests introduce themselves first. Yes. Can you hear me? Okay. I'm working great. on a system I'm not familiar with. So, okay, that's good. All right. I'm going to get my technical um, assistant. I'm going to let him um, have a break now. Okay. <laughs> that would be my husband. <laughs> Uh, hi, everybody. So I'm Sharon Fowler, and I'm a clinical director at a large public school in Maine. Um, we have large for Maine, uh, <laughs> uh, 25 uh, ish, uh, 100 kids that we serve there. I've been um, a clinical director in another district before coming here. So I supervise um, in this district um, 21 clinicians, clinical social workers, um, and school counselors. Um, and uh, my task is to oversee some of our um, more complex treatment programs, day treatment programs um, that we have on site um, and supervise that and support the paraprofessionals um, and uh, lead the way with a, a new mental health initiative for the district, which um, in my experience in, in this state, um, that's pretty innovative uh, with, uh, you know, the support of superintendents and assistant superintendents and special ed directors. I've been doing this work. I've been a, a social worker for, I counted, 32 years. <laughs> and um, I've been supervising people for 26 of those years. Um, and, um, you know, I have worked in residential treatment, uh, again, public education and special purpose schools, um, you know, have been trained in trauma-focused CBT and other treatment models. Um, and um, I think that meeting um, Emily and Lara changed the trajectory of my career. Um, after a real long time, I feel like I want to weep a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. Because, um, like Kelly said, it really gave me um, the language and a platform that made sense to me for the first time as a leader, as a female leader, um, and a, an ability to continue this work with a confidence that I didn't have before, even though I had been doing it for a long time. Um, and a bit of a, a more of a command, I would say, over the conversation um, that really led me into um, this new school district. And I started in July. Who starts a new job during a pandemic? Holy heck, I mean to tell you. Um, and so, and interestingly enough, I tell people all the time, and you start the work with a face mask. So your ability to connect is 
immediately impaired. Um, and, and so I've had to really work on that because of um, being new and trying to learn who people are. It's been a, a real challenge. Um, so I didn't think, you know, when Emily was telling me in that very first training, I, I think I've been in like a thousand trainings now with Emily. Um, I'm kind of a creep like that. Um, about the polyvagal theory, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm trying to connect this and connect this. And now it's just the best, right? It's, it's just what I um, am, lear am learning to know that and Bruce Perry's work um, and, and all of that. So I'm just happy to be here talking about this, talking with you, Emily and Lara. It's just such a treat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Erin. All the warm fuzzies. Mm -hmm. Lara, do you want to introduce yourself? Because Kel doesn't know you. I know the others do. That's right. Hi, everyone. I'm Lara Kane. Um, so I'm a consultant on trauma-informed schools. Been doing it for a very long time, probably since about 2009. Um, and I've been in schools since much before that. Um, and I've been doing a lot of work with Emily over the last, like, two, two years, I think. Right? I'm losing yeah, track. Two or three. Mm -hmm. Almost three. Oh, wow. Yeah, we've been doing these amazing retreats and um, other workshops together. So it's been amazing. She's my West Coast PLU. <laughs> oh yeah, and I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> Chris, you're new to these guys. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. And how's my, how's my audio? Am I really loud? It sounds audio? awesome. Sounds okay. great. I, okay. I adore your headset. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty snazzy, right? It's like green. Love it. Light. I love it. Um, so my name is Kristen Bernier. I am in Hancock, New Hampshire, and I am a, a marketer by trade um, for over 20 years. I have specialized in marketing and brand development and specifically brand voice. In the last few years, um, I've learned an awful lot about uh, felt sense of safety and trauma in my trainings with Emily. And so really looking at how those things are intertwined and healthy communication has become a huge part of my mission. I am also a certified PIO, that's Public Information Officer in the Homeland Security Incident Command System. Um, so in, in looking at how to broadly disseminate complex information um, is, is something that I, I really look to kind of bring to folks and, and help them understand because that is definitely a, a, a skill. Um, so that's, that's sort of me in a nutshell. I'm very excited to be here with you. So great to have Chris and to have her bring in that, <clears throat> that angle too for us. So what I'd like to do now, if you all um, are ready, is I want to have a conversation and I want to talk a bit about, um, you know, what your experiences have been through this time. And before we even touch into that, I want to hear a bit about, and, and I know that Sharon and Kelly have also started to make reference to this, but um, it'd be great to hear a bit about this, I call, we call it the trauma-informed journey. And it's not just like, that's not my language, that's just sort of the language of the movement, because I think we're all recognized that this is an ever-evolving, emerging kind of thing. Um, meaning that it's a, in my opinion, it's deeply personal transformative work. And so therefore it never has a real ending. And also it's, a, it's, it's aspirational work because being human, we're never gonna just like arrive and then it stays static, right? 
It's something that is, is where we are striving to embody on a daily basis. And we often fall short because our default ways of being are very much in our body memory. And those are, those take a lot of time to, um, reprogram, if you will. So I'd love to hear a bit about sort of, um, either any part of the story you want to tell, like how you got started with it or what you're encountering in it now, what struggles or challenges you face with it, um, where it's living during this whole COVID thing. Like, does it live for you right now? Or is it just kind of one of those things where, you know, you were going towards that or moving towards that with your programming or with your schools or with your staff, and then you had to kind of shelf it because of the pandemic. Um, and to hear a bit about too, what, this experience has been for you professionally, you know, what has been, has it been to be, um, you know, part of the work that we're really interested in, in exploring with this program that we've developed is really focusing in on the female experience because in, in our experiences, so when I say that, so in mine and in Kristen and Lars experience, that's a different experience than, um, that's a different experience that have its, has its own unique features. And in the movement, in the trauma-informed movement, if you, if you think about it, it's, it's still very much a male-dominated, white male-dominated movement. So that means that the vast majority of scientists who are familiar or gaining greater familiarity to lots of people are older white gentlemen. Um, and also some of the leaders, although they're phenomenal, they have also been like, like, leaders in the field, whether that's Jim Spore leader or Matt Portell or, um, you know, so it's, it's not as common to have women, their voices and their experiences be elevated in the work. And yet 98% of the participants in our trainings are female. So that means that there's a lot of women out there doing this work, pioneering this work. We see you all as that, and we're interested in elevating your voice and your experiences. So that's really what we're looking to do here. Um, and, and hoping to do as we're moving forward, as here this now is moving forward, that's kind of a, uh, angle of the work that I want to dig further into. So, um, that's a lot. <laughs> and, um, so I don't know if, any, if anybody's sort of inspired to want to share a bit about their story, given what I've just described. I don't, I don't mind starting. I'm kind of an open book around this stuff, but um, I come to the work um, with experience. Uh, I had a lot of chaos and trauma when I was younger in my life. Um, I spent a, a portion of my adolescence in foster care and then um, spent my last year of high school homeless. Um, in reflection, I had two educational adults that helped me build resilience. I also had a couple of um, uh, my best friend's family also did, but these were my, like the people that I always could trust and that I had a relationship with. Um, my life could have gone 27 different ways, but instead I was even living homeless. I had a lot of support and I was able to graduate. I graduated with honors. Um, it took me a little bit of time to get to college because I was the first person in my family. There was a lot of intergenerational poverty, undereducation and trauma. Um, in my family. And uh, I didn't really know how to get to college. It took me a second, but I started college when I was like 21. Um, fell into the sciences, which seemed pretty natural, but then I visited one of my trusted adults in, um, towards the end of my bachelor's degree. 
And he was like, wait, you're going to be a geologist? Julie, what? What? Like, I think he assumed that I would go into teaching and something shifted in me. And I realized at that point that I wanted to be that trusted adult for other kids. Um, so I began my work in special education, focusing on emotionally impaired students. And I, my, one of my first teaching jobs, my first teaching job was at Star Commonwealth, which was a residential facility for kiddos that um, my cottage in particular were all awaiting foster care placement. They were involved with Department of Human Services as well as they were mostly adjudicated for other reasons there. And the traumas that I saw in my students changed everything in me. Um, I can't, I can't even, I'm going to get emotional just thinking about those kids. So that's where I started some of my trauma-informed care work without it actually being, having that label on it because um, we were talking about circle of courage and the sense of belonging and mastery and independence and generosity and how your circle gets broken and, you know, what comes out of that for, for individuals. And then I, I ended up moving into, um, that was, I was still a public school teacher there through an intermediate school district, but then I moved into to like building work um, in my community in a school building instead of a residential campus. And again, I was working in one of the schools that had the most at-risk students, um, low SES, um, <clears throat> mostly uh, people, kids of color, and the cycle's just going on and on. <laughs> um, feeling that the model within which I was trained under, which was behavior modification, was not meeting the needs of the students. This was not something you could reward or consequence out, and I had to figure out a different way. And then I became a school leader for a, a school with kiddos that were experiencing the same things, and my team really all had that behavior modification lens too. But we were seeing the same results. So luckily, um, a training in New Hampshire fell in my lap, and um, I had within the first few minutes of meeting Emily and Lara, and definitely that first day, like looking at um, the material, but also talking about ACEs and then doing my own ACEs score and being able to connect um, how much unresolved trauma I had in my life just keeps propelling me through this work. Um, and I said to, to Emily the other day that that training was the launch pad for so many changes in my life to really dig into my own trauma, to be able to lead a team through the work, through the hard paradigms of understanding that student behavior isn't necessarily something that they choose, it's a reaction, it's tough. It's really, it's really hard to undo that learning, especially if maybe you haven't experienced trauma on a very physiological, emotional, spiritual level. Um, so I'm just so grateful that that October training in 2018, I believe, came along and, uh, and meeting these ladies. So thank you. Does anybody else resonate with that same kind of thing that it's been a personal as well as professional journey? I think um, for me especially, um, and how I got into this was the whole piece of not from that we were all experiencing a trauma this was back in the spring and looking at what could i what did what did our staff need being completely remote going through this time 
And some of our schools had started doing trauma-informed training, and that's where it started for me. It's like, okay, I don't know enough about trauma-informed schools or anything like that. So I started looking into things, and we found um, the, regula the regulated classroom training, and our guidance counselors went to that back in, I don't know if it was April or May, um, with Emily, and they just raved about it. And so then she had another session that she was doing, what was it, August, early August? something like that. So why I, I signed up, um, I wanted to find out about this. And I did not realize the impact that it was going to have both professionally and personally on me. Um, I realized personally that I was in the midst of a trauma that was not COVID related and had to do some things to take care of that. Um, and this whole, um, it just really shifted this whole thing and looking at children. And what's unique is that the communities I work in and the children that we have come, come to us are very affluent, very affluent. And when behaviors, when there are children that are acting out, it's never, the first question is not always, is there a trauma going on here? It's this kid's being a jerk. And they're being elitist and, you know, they, they probably act like this at home and they get, you know, anything they want and they're spoiled and, and the list goes on. Instead of looking at that whole really regulation piece, because trauma, trauma doesn't happen in our communities, just in case you were wondering, um, none of that goes on. And so people were not resonating with the word trauma, um, because I, I, it was just some mentality, especially the staff too. It was like, we, we don't have trauma here. What, you know, so it was very hard to get them to look at that. But I really, and, and knowing that you can't get to the teaching and learning unless you're regulated, it's not going to happen. It's biology, it's physical, it's not going to happen. And that the body is reacting. And as you said, um, that, the kids were reacting and they couldn't help it. it. It, they didn't have a choice, you know, they just could not do that. Um, and so I was able, you know, not only to, to say, this is what we're going to focus on and coming from me, everybody was shocked because I do all the teaching and learning. So there's been a real focus on, you know, the academics and let's get really great learning experiences and having kids apply things and project-based learning and personalized learning. And, you know, we were, we were going down the road. And then to have them come back this school year and for me to say, I don't want you to do any of that. Right now you're gonna concentrate on building relationships. You're gonna concentrate on these kids they have been through a trauma. It's all about their social emotional piece. You're going to play together. I don't want you doing any academics, nothing for the first two weeks. Don't dare do it. <laughs> and that was a very, very different message. And also that they have to take care of themselves. And I gave them some things that I'd learned from Emily about self-care and different ideas. Um, and at first they thought I'd lost my mind, quite frankly, because this was not the major message that had come from me before. But I think they could see that I was very passionate about it, and I really did um, believe it, and I did expect them. So every message has something about self-care, everything I try to do with them, and getting my superintendent to 
trust me on this one and give me that support to say, okay, that's what we'll focus on and to talk that talk himself. Um, so it has been a real switch. I'm still very extremely passionate about it. It's very hard to get people to accept, accept the self-care piece um, and to realize that I'm trying to get them to realize you don't have to do a big thing like go work out in the gym for 40 minutes. Little things, couple of minutes, space throughout the day. That's the hardest thing to get them to do, to take that time. Um, and, and the other thing that I realized, none of this could be possible for me to have these conversations with the staff if I had not built a very strong relationship with them over the past six years. Um, they would not be accepting of the way that I switched my focus. Um, so that relationship with whomever you supervise or you work with is like so unbelievably important so that they build that trust and they know that I really am looking out for them, trying to look out for them and support them during this time, which is, and being real, um, we always want leaders to be vulnerable. And I always thought that meant, you know, every once in a while I should cry or, you know, show, show strong emotion or something like that. But I found out it's not really, it's, it's being real. It's saying to them, um, you know, this sucks and it sucks for me too. And these are the things that I used to do in the fall or whatever it might be. And I can't do them now. However, here are things that I can do now that I couldn't do before and trying to make that switch to something more positive. To me, I think that's being vulnerable and validating their thoughts and feelings um, as much as I can to kind of show that I'm real. I'm not just this figurehead that sits in central office kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of my journey. So. Want me to go? You know, uh, personally for me, you know, my journey um, growing up also was um, filled with poverty and intergenerational trauma and substance use that impacted everybody. Um, women stayed home um, to raise children. They, they didn't go to college. Um, I'm one of six um, and I was the first one in my family to get an undergraduate degree. And then, um, and nobody, nobody, including my guidance counselor, talked with me that, that college was a possibility for me. Um, and certainly graduate school, I mean, I just never even thought of that. And I had some uh, amazing journeys in my social work education and people that I met that um, started, you know, to help me think differently and think about myself. Um, and um, so, you know, it brought me to different places in the country and um, different experiences with leaders in the field of social work practice um, and strong women leaders. And, um, and 
and and so being in the work i'm working um specifically with with refugees and um people that had experienced severe sexual abuse um, and physical abuse um the inner city violence that i witnessed and and bear witness to through their stories um uh just uh, and you know going into the inner city and doing the literally boots on the ground work because the university of houston wanted to do some research and I, I just wasn't prepared for that um and it changed me um the work changed me um and um and then you know i think um the other things that happened were um as i got into the educational world the only voice i heard um first of all were mostly men and I'm mostly really leaning toward applied behavior analysis as the only intervention for behavior. Um, and so I would kind of rack my brain and say, what? Well, it just doesn't, this, some of this, it doesn't resonate with me. I just don't understand. There's this, you know, this different piece that I need to know. And in Maine, um, years ago, there was this training on adverse childhood experiences and I, I i knew that i just needed to go to that so they did this big training in the state which i thought was big um, and some great uh, female leaders doing that training um, and i went to it and there were about 30 or 40 people there in that training and and it was about um trauma-informed schools so not only aces but that I was the single person from a school in the training. And I'm looking around saying, what is going on here? And, and it was kind of that moment where I was like, I, I have something to do. I got something to do here. Um, and uh, from there, I was able to start training um, staff um, and ended up training hundreds of staff in my previous district. All paras got that training. Um, all new teachers got the training. Um, and I was just able to incorporate that in so much of my work. Um, and um, Oh, there was something else I wanted to say. Um, and so oh, then I meet these two phenomenal women leaders. Um, I don't even know how I ended up there. It was kind of a mistake, Clara and, and Emily. At the last minute, I was scared to death because we're going into these cabins in the woods. And I, I think I had a trauma response because I was so scared. And um, yet... What happened was really not only getting the information, like the, the foundation of polyvagal theory and Bruce Perry's work and all of that, but I got to see two strong women leaders doing this in a different way and in a different way because how we came together as a group deliberately at the end of every day um, was so powerful to me so powerful to me and again i just i knew i am on the right track i i can do this I, and and you know i want to do this because i know it can be different uh for 
for kids and for um, staff and for leaders. Um, so that's kind of the journey. So how is that for all of you? I mean, all of you are describing fairly large, you know, very, fairly transformative shifts in both your, your own um, experiences, meaning um, certain experiences you were having as an educator um, were powerful in forming the kind of person you wanted to be as a professional, but also, at least I heard that from Julie and from Sharon, but also that this was a very, when you learned, started learning about the trauma-informed science, it had a powerful resonance for you because of your experiences and because you were in search of a different explanation, right? And, and in maybe even more resources or tools to better serve those, those people that, or those children that you felt called to need to serve. And so I'm sort of wondering like, What's that look like now? Like in the middle of COVID, do you, what is, how is that shifting or has that shifted? And how is it harder to pursue this now? Or is it harder to pursue this now? Yes, it is. We don't, <laughs> we don't. So for us, we're still remote. I have, I have a whole team that I was given this year. That it was a program that was started last year. I was given the team. I've never met them in person, ever. And I'm trying to help them understand the basic principles of trauma-informed care via Zoom. There's something so magical about sharing that energy in a room with folks that can be transformative that does not exist to its fullest in this environment. Mm -hmm. I appreciated when um, Sharon said that it was masks, like, she, you know, she, she, she is in person, but it was with masks that, that does create a barrier. Um, I would take masks any day just to have that kind of energy though, right now with my team. I haven't seen a lot of my team in eight months. Yeah, it's extremely difficult. That's an extremely difficult um, circumstance. And a lot of the country is experiencing that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Laura, you guys have been remote in LA the whole time, right? Yep, the entire time. Yeah, yeah. most of California has, but especially all of um, LA County. Yeah. And so there, yeah, there's just a lot of the country that's experiencing that right now. And it's, it's truly, it truly is really a challenge for both, you know, administrators, but then like, you know, the families and the kids and all of that. I think the only positive in my eyes beyond, of course, the safety, like I am grateful that we are remote is that we haven't gone back and forth. I've spoken to a lot of administrators and teachers who are like, they go to school, they get sent home, they go hybrid, they go virtual. Like they've just been bouncing back and forth in attempting to go back to school. So I think that is, even though it's really, really hard and I actually don't think we're gonna go back to school this year in LA, I'd be very surprised because they've been acting, you know, on the much more conservative end of, of the, you know, safety spectrum, I guess. and. I think that's the only like upside for me is that there hasn't been that swing back and forth that I hear a lot of people experiencing, which really seems to compound the trauma they're experiencing by trying to adjust overnight. Because sometimes they only have like a day's notice or, you know, and then they're worried about their own safety and anyway. So Julie, you're fully remote. Kelly, you're in person fully. And Sharon, where are you at? We're hybrid. We're hybrid. You're hybrid. Okay. Yeah. Oh, how, how great is that? <laughs> Right? Uh, 
know. We, uh, we've noticed there are some things that we've put in place to have, you know, kids in the building that we've noticed have made a, a huge difference. Um, like at, they have more breaks during the day. So recess has come back. Even for our middle school kids, they're out three times a day for like 15 minutes each. Um, and that's the other thing through the fall, um, outside. There were outside classrooms. Kids were outside for everything. And we know that being out in nature, you know, is, is good for everybody. So those kinds of things. And the principal has noticed that um, she doesn't have any recess issues anymore. Of course, they're not like all on top of each other. When they're out there, they are spacing and whatnot. Um, the other thing I noticed, I was able to visit a kindergarten classroom. And the kids were at, at, at little centers. There were a couple of kids together. And they were playing and I had not, there was nothing academic about those centers. One was just blocks, just old fashioned wooden blocks. Um, one was Legos. Um, so two, there was a, a dollhouse castle that kids were playing with. And then there was another group of kids that um, had toy matchbox cars. When was the last time you saw matchbox cars, right? Mm -hmm. And they were just playing. And I was like, wow, I hope we can, and there's so much learning going on. Mm -hmm. There was learning going on. Developmentally appropriate learning. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I was like, we need to keep, we've brought back some things that we lost. Mm -hmm. and we need to keep these and realize that this is. I have tingles going out my back right now. <laughs> and we also have we also have small class sizes. So we went with no more, trying to get no more than thirteen, less than that in a classroom, um, and I think it's made a world of difference, a world of difference for all of our kids. And those are the things that I hope that we keep and and learn from and don't ever go back to normal <laughs> um, in some of these things. You know, it's funny you say that and you mentioned that, Kelly, because there's a new thing that's happening this year in our district that I really think my, both my kids and the educators, I know the educators have enjoyed it, but our students aren't in school on Fridays. So our high school yep. kids are off and our middle school kids have a half day. And I think it's been a beautiful thing for the entire school community. It's been a hassle as a parent personally, because I got to get my daughter in the middle of the day. But I, um, but I would take that just because I think it's good for kids to have a break. And it also leaves room for the possibility, maybe post-COVID, for some interesting programming that would be um, enhancing, socially enhancing for students. Um, you know, instead of ever just trying to drive those academics five days a week, because I don't really think we're getting anywhere with that anyways. Yeah, we have that as well the Fridays off the students do remote. It's a remote learning day yeah. um, for them. And the teachers are in the building, which has allowed them a lot of time to work together and train. And we've discovered it's more work for everyone to keep the kids in the building right now. Um, it's a lot of extra. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, for sure. So do you mind me asking like, um, what do you feel like, what do you, because I've, I've, I've had conversations with all three of you individually. Um, and so I know that there, and I, 
you know, I, we've supported different clients during this time. Um, and we know that, that it's sort of a universal experience, shall we say, <laughs> pretty universal experience right now that leaders are actually struggling the most to stay resilient in all of this. And what I mean by that is really remain feeling engaged with the work and not totally fried by it. Um, and I think that has to do a lot with leaders, generally speaking, had to, from the moment COVID struck, they were then asked by their school boards or by their admin, you know, senior administration, superintendent, whatnot, to stay on and help plan last school year. And then as this school year was coming, they wanted to be even more prepared for the uncertainty. And so those leaders stayed and planned all summer long. Um, and that that whole planning process is an iterative process at this point. As, as numbers fluctuate, as things shift, it's just kind of like you're always bracing for this, like what's next, what's coming next, right? And, and we also know that it's, it's been, yes, the pandemic has been one of the factors and variables influencing our level of stress, but obviously there are other factors that are just as salient. Um, the political unrest that, has, that continues, um, the, the racial injustice issues that are still continue, there's just this multitude of tensions that actually do have direct impact on school environments. And so, like, what do you guys, what's, what's your thing that you're struggling, you find yourself struggling the most with right now? And what kind of, do you know what kind of support you would benefit from? Or does the idea of being supported excite you in any way about that? <laughs> I mean, can, I'll jump in. Um, I mean, my goodness, it excites me actually beyond belief. And um, when I think about you moving into this, I think, and this might be a weird analogy, so bear with me, uh, is, you know, a... Um, it was a good portion of my life that I did theater, right? And, you know, you practice, you practice, you practice, and, and then it's, it's opening night. And um, I felt like, you know, as, as this significant crisis erupted, that it was my time. And, and I get weepy, even though that might sound weird, but it was my time. Um, to, to help this system um, and um, to really activate what I had learned to this new level and that we were experiencing the single most um, um, event that has impacted the mental health in public education ever and nobody that I have talked with activated their crisis teams. No one. Ooh. And so people have been floundering about that because what they had to do was activate things and processes and check off CDC boxes. Mm. And I was in a position now to activate that foundation for overall mental health and to notice and to be that voice 
um, for our staff, our students, and their families uh, for what they were experiencing. And so I, I feel like that, that then becomes our purpose to be that voice. And I've been in this district where they're giving me that voice. And I think like um, Kelly, um, sometimes they're, they're looking at me like, you're talking about what? Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, talking about connection with children and students, um, but also all of the things in the regulated classroom are also things that our staff have needed. Mm -hmm. um, they have needed people mm -hmm. to connect. They have needed um, all of those, um, that foundation um, that you talk about, Emily, um, in the regulated classrooms. So it becomes like that practice ground for us um, to, so that I with confidence could say, the single most important thing that we can do for children and for our staff is to connect with them. Mm -hmm. um, and know that with a confidence that I would have never known before. Mm -hmm. um, and to think about it and not hide from that um, or my femaleness. <laughs> you know, because you, yeah. it was always the rolling of the eyes. Oh, it's the, you know, right. the mental right. health person or the social right. worker. And, you know, that's what they think. Yeah. We are all, we are mm -hmm. all affected. There is no question. Yeah. Um, and so I think people are looking to us for the answers, for the support, and a sense of clarity that um, many just don't have at this time. So, um, you know, that's what I'm excited about and, and, and being able to be confident in that role um, and ready and yeah. ready. Jules, did you want to jump in there? Because you sounded like you were resonating with that. Oh, I just, yeah, when she said her womanness or her femaleness, like just right on, um, you know, because it is important, it, it, you know, and we're often defined by it, but it's such a strength also at this time. Um, so I was just singing her praises. But yeah, for me, you know, um, um, emailed me a couple weeks ago and, and, and I got the information about the, the upcoming sessions. And um, I had not stopped to think about me at all in this, you know, as far as like my leadership and things, you just, you just hit the ground and you're, you know, in our work, we're problem solvers. So I was just busy. I felt like I was drinking out of a fire hose the last nine months, like, you know. Um, so for me, it's a couple of different prompts. And um, I, I've been thinking about it since I've been able to talk to Emily. Number one, I'm looking to somehow break the sense of isolation I have as the as a leader. Um, I don't, because the work is so heavy and big right now, I don't feel like I'm ha I have the time to connect with other folks to really do some growing work in this. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a, that's a big thing for this upcoming convos during COVID that is really important to me. Second is learning how, well, I see this as such a huge opportunity. Like we broke a system. A system is absolutely broken right now. And what are we going to do with it? And I'm not smart enough to figure it out on my own. Like I need all of these beautiful women. I need whoever else is coming there that wants to be change agents and system changers and disruptors. 
because we couldn't have we could not have created this out of our own volition or willpower like it's here so what do we do mm -hmm. and then the other piece is um trying to figure out the best way to keep supporting my staff through the changes which is what the work with emily and lara and you know has helped me kind of dig into over the last couple of years because there's a lot of support when you create change or a change is thrust upon you or like we said this is getting dismantled so how do i support that because the anxiety i'm seeing um is just coming in all different ways you know all the stages of grief are being are being presented and i don't you know i have a staff of 50 60 um i have the we're very close with our families which I do want to bring up something about that. Like, so it's like this big community that I'm kind of the leader of, and I'm trying to figure out how to meet everybody's needs. And, I, you know, it's, it's a challenge. It really, I just, sometimes I'm like, am I the right person for this? Or, you, you know, that femaleness comes back in, like maybe I'm not good enough to do this work, but I know I'm assuming every person sitting at this table is feeling the same thing. And that brings strength, you know, the one thing I will say is we're talking about relationships. Um, sometimes my pro, you know, my, my team as we've been moving, this is our fourth year of doing trauma-informed care work. Um, and it's felt um, sometimes very challenging and lots of barriers, but seeing them mobilize in their relationships with the students that were already there is such an amazing strength. Like, um, we're a, we're, we're a small community, but those relationships with some of the most impacted kiddos it's been beautiful like it is amazing so i love hearing that julie that sounds i love that and i also really appreciate it. other people resonate at all of what she's saying or describing in terms of the imposter syndrome <laughs> yeah not only the imposter syndrome but also that lonely it's not really loneliness but feeling the burden of being the leader and you know people are looking to you to to be that strong person to be you know i've always told them if i'm acting like my hair is on fire then there probably is a real problem that you need to be worried about otherwise you know just hold on but i think the only way we can do this i've looked back over the last nine months and with everything going on it's like okay how are you not in a padded room right now, honestly, mm -hmm. with this pressure? And it never ended. As Emily said, our summer was not a summer. Um, yeah. It never ended. And there were so many people looking to us, looking to me, looking to the superintendent, our central office team for all the answers that none, nobody had. Mm -hmm. And I think if I had not already had some support in place with really good friends, really supportive family and was already doing some things for self-care i would not be here and able to do this and able to hold that for the 120 teachers that we have and the six administrators and also i'm kind of the lightning rod for the central office team look to me to provide that that sense of regulation for them, you know, the whole, it's contagious. Well, mm -hmm. I'm the one that has to be the one that that's contagious to them in terms of, mm -hmm. of regulation, but doing that 
you have to, I think as, as the leader, I have to really know myself, really know myself, really know when my body, when I am dysregulated and be disciplined enough, I guess, to stop, do something and come back to it. And I've never been that disciplined with it. It's like plow through, plow through, I'll go home, I'll relax then. I got to get this done. But now I've really had to do that. And I think it's also a great opportunity to be, to try to be the model, especially for my administrators to say, uh, you have to stop. I'm telling you, you have to stop and, and do this for yourself or your staff. You're not going to be able, you're going to be burnt out by November if you don't stop. Um, and then sometimes I look around and it's like, okay, where's my, where's my model? Who's <laughs> the person that's going to come to Kelly and say, I need a Kelly. That's what I tell myself. I need a Kelly to come to me and say, okay, you, you have to stop. Um, and you have to recognize and ask for what you need from your boss. Mm-hmm. Like th- this coming week, I'm taking the whole week off tomorrow, right through Friday. And, and there are several of us at central office. It was like, we looked around, it was like, we don't have anything major going on. All of this is done. Everybody's in a fantastic place. And I looked at my superintendent and said, we're taking off. There are about three of us that are going to be off all next week. You you know how to find us if you truly need us. But this is the only chance we've had since March of last March to do this and we have to do it because we're, we're getting fried. So sometimes I have to be the spokesperson for that too, but it's just recognizing that as a leader, you have that and you, you have to take care of yourself. There is no way people can get through this without that. So we really, I mean, you know, part of the reason why we've de- developed this program, Kelly, is because we see that. We see that need. Um, It's interesting because I think it's, um, first of all, we see the need. We see the need for leaders to have Kellys, right? Because they really don't. They have a school board, which is like the opposite of Kelly. (laughs) Oh, yes. And uh, seriously. And also because what's, what's really been kind of interesting, and I don't know if, you know, Chris or Laura want to chime in about this, but what's really interesting too is that, um, and I'm just going to bring it back to the, to, the, to the female experience for a moment. I think it's also because, so even still in education, even though there are, is more women represented in positions of leadership, statistically speaking, Men, you know, women are 80% of their teachers, right? But like 80% of our administrators are men. So, and that's not exactly accurate, but a much higher percentage of men are in positions of leadership in schools than in the classroom. And so I think in many ways, it's hard for us as women to say we need help because in some ways, and I'm not saying that this isn't necessarily conscious, but at some like body memory level to say that you need support would somehow indicate that you're weak or you're incompetent or you're ill-prepared or ill-equipped because the men, they do, they tend to plow straight through, right? Um, And I'm talking in generalities here, but 
that's also um, sort of the what we have defined as a leader up to this point. And I feel as though this work is calling us to redefine so much, including what does it mean to be a leader? Because we've got to get, we've got to move past this notion that leaders are singular, that they, that all the, all the power resides with them, that all the decisions need to be made by them, that, um, being a leader is about being stoic and being unemotional and unavailable and, un, and, and dissociated and all of those things um, that have been very much the, you know, icon of a leader or a strong leader. Um, and so I think this is, it's funny though, because people are like, oh my God, you mean like coaching for leadership? That's like kind of what this would be or support for leadership? Like what? <laughs> Like our teachers need that. We hire coaches all the time for our teachers. Our teachers need a whole hell of a lot of supervision and support, but not, not our administrators, really, you know? So it's, and, you know, I don't know if Chris or Laura want to chime in about that, but it's just sort of interesting that I think we're tapping into a need that exists, but it's still a bit of a hurdle for people to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I haven't talked to, I mean, I've talked to a lot of principals in the last, six months and they're all totally exhausted, <laughs> totally fried. Yeah. And don't know who to turn to for support necessarily either, you know, not sure that it's, and they also feel a huge responsibility to be the stoic support for the rest of the building, you know, so how do the, how can they turn to someone for support and still continue to be the, base of strength for the teachers that are doing their best. Yeah. I would say in my like 25 plus years, seeing leadership across public and private sectors, the a need for strong and trauma-informed leadership. And when I say strong, I don't mean that masculine, like plow through it strong. I mean, willing to be vulnerable and in, inwardly strong. And I do think one of the opportunities with the current pandemic that we have and what we're facing is that all of the things that leaders could hide behind have been stripped away. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was listening to, um, oh my God, who was it the other day? It was so good. And I was like, and it may have been, so, you know, we have been, um, Chris and I have been nerding out with a woman by the name of Rachel Rogers. She actually does business coaching. And so I've been, you know, I had actually been looking for a long time for a mentor in business and couldn't find any um, because of course I, I wanted to build something that was a social enterprise, like that, you know, use business as a vehicle for social good and social change. And so anybody who wanted to mentor me, that wasn't like they had come to the work from that perspective. And, um, and, but I kept thinking I needed to find a guy, like a man who made, you know, had done, you know, built a, built a company or built a business or whatever, and that they could kind of, you know, share with me a few nuggets here or there. And nothing just, nothing ever really panned out in that way. And then I stumbled upon this woman, Rachel Rogers, who does, like I said, she does business coaching for women. And it's changed my whole world, but it's interesting to listen to her, given how successful that she is, to talk about when you are someone who is pioneering work, but even if you're leading in any kind of way, you are never um, with you are never without need yourself for 
someone to be guiding you. So like, you know, it's just, it's, 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 uh, you never get, <laughs> right? You, like, you never get to this point where you're so evolved that you no longer are in need of some sort of guidance. <laughs> mm-hmm. Amen. And a lot of times it's not necessarily about the guidance being provided by somebody who's bigger, better, higher up, or any of that, because a lot of wisdom can be culled from just peers, just peers giving support. Like you ladies, you three women have such incredible rich experiences that your wisdom that resides within you will be that much more magnified when you share it among others, right? And so for us, the three of us, what we really want to do is bring women like you together so that you can feel that sense of a web, you can feel that sense of support, and you can also contribute to it because nothing really bolsters confidence by knowing that you've made nothing can bolster confidence more than knowing you've made a meaningful contribution to something, right? Like people can tell you all the time, Julie, you're fantastic. I think you're amazing. And that feels good for a second. Like, oh, that feels kind of good. But when you know that you just imparted some of your experience to someone else and that like lit something for them, like, oh my God, (laughs) oh my God, that's like such a great idea. And I'm going to try that and I'm going to do that. And I never even thought about that. that's like when you go, yeah, well, shit, I'm badass. You know, like I do have something to contribute here. So that's what we want to create for you all and, um, and others like you, because you are the future of this movement. This movement pre-COVID was in some ways losing traction because it was starting to get like all other school initiatives and school movements. Um, you know what I mean? Like it just gets to be like, what does trauma from schools even mean? But yeah, you are, you ladies are really actually trying to make it mean something on the ground. And, you know, we want to help you do that. 